Welcome to the Exit Strategy, your no bullshit guide to divorce with the experienced attorneys from New Direction Family Law and guests that have been there. Unfiltered discussions to help you move from victim to victorious and from bitter to better. Hi, I'm Sarah Hink, one of the attorneys and partners at New Direction Family Law. And today we have Jen Bordeaux sitting in for Elizabeth Stevenson. Big Elizabeth. shoes to feel. Really cute <laughs> shoes to, to fill. She oh. has really good shoes. And cute. And cute. Shoes to feel. Yeah, to be, yeah, we can feel them too. Some of them fine. feel good too. <laughs> yeah, we're going to think she's busy in court today, as she often is. And our guest today is Ryan Kelly. She is the Associate Director of Domestic Violence Service or Do- Domestic Violence Victim Services. <laughs> Victim Services, yeah. At Interact here in Wake County. And this is part one of a two-part episode. So thank you so much for being here, Ryan. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this with you. Yeah. And we're going to talk today about signs of domestic violence, the cycle of domestic violence, the power and control wheel. And there's really so much that we could talk about, unfortunately, that um, goes into how to identify what is actually domestic violence. And it's probably a lot more than you think. And also the next step after that, and if you're in the community, how to support others. If you're a friend or family and you see signs of domestic violence. So tell us a little bit about your role at Interact and we'll go. So my role at Interact is that I oversee a few different programs that help folks who are experiencing either domestic violence or sexual assault with creating immediate and prolonged safety. So my programs are primarily externally facing, which means that I typically help our clients navigate other systems of response. So I help them navigate law enforcement interventions, the court systems, seeking out health care. So that's typically the work that I'm doing with my team. And it really has helped me gain a better understanding not only of the dynamics that impact survivors and their families, but also how our community responds to these situations because in some ways the community can be very helpful and and can really support people in navigating to safety and in other ways it can actually be quite invalidating and and restrictive so I've learned both coins in my position yeah and you get you're just talking about the the herd and depth trial everyone watches and judging and it's, it's unfortunate because this is a situation that people live in day in and day out and to think that you might go to someone for help and they have their own opinions or judgments about your relationship and what they think is domestic violence and it takes the form of so many different things. So tell us a little bit about the ways domestic violence can show up in a relationship and what kind of relationship has domestic violence. Sure. So unfortunately in media and in a lot of conversations, folks identify domestic violence as physical abuse. And physical abuse is oftentimes a part of a intimate partner violence or domestic violence dynamic. But it's usually only one piece of that puzzle. There's usually a lot of things going on in that dynamic in addition to the physical abuse. And sometimes those mechanisms are actually what make it more difficult to operate in that relationship and then leave that relationship safely. So we use an educational tool, whether we're talking to survivors or talking to community members, and it's called the power and control wheel. A lot of people are familiar with this, but essentially it identifies some of the other types of abuse that can be perpetrated by one partner against another partner with that intention of gaining power and control over the other partner. That's really what we're looking at when we're talking about domestic violence and intimate partner violence is that taking of control from the other person. So that can be done in a lot of different ways. Like I said, it can be physical abuse, but it can also be financial abuse. 
So making it difficult for that person to work or to maintain their own financial autonomy. Using children or other family members as pawns against that person. We see housing abuse. So they're the only person on the lease or they're the only person who has access to all the financial records around a shared property. So these are a lot of different types of things that can essentially build either legal barriers, physical barriers, or emotional barriers to that person successfully exiting that relationship in a safe way. So I would say that's the biggest thing that you want to be listening for or you want to be assessing in your own dynamic. Do I feel like I have the autonomy to do what I want to do and to feel safe or do I feel like I don't have that autonomy? And that might be a red flag that you're experiencing something like intimate partner violence or domestic violence. Yeah. And people can use religion to to control people and hide behind that. Something I've seen come up recently with all the Roe v. Wade overturning that and abortion is how a lot of abusers use impregnation and fertility as a way of control in situations like that where if I get her pregnant, then she's going to feel like she can't leave. And just to to keep in mind that kind of situation as we take away options for women in the future. But there's a lot to look for that I don't think everyday people think about. And you're lucky if you don't have to think about it, but it's out there. Yeah, that reproductive health piece and that commitment and, and sharing of children is also another dynamic that we see at play. So there's these different areas where somebody might perpetrate or experience abuse, but then it typically follows a pattern. So at the beginning of the relationship, there's this kind of love bombing phase where there's almost like an excessive amount of, I love you, we should be together forever, we should move in together, we should have children, we should get married. So the commitment is very fast. It, it, it accelerates in a much quicker time period than typical relationships. And then that eventually gives way to periods of time where the abuser is withholding affection or being very critical of the other partner. And it, it, it starts to build this tension. And that can then sometimes result in what we would consider an abusive incident where mm -hmm. a, a victim is really feeling fearful, is maybe injured. So something that really in an explicit way crosses a line. But then that gives way again to that love bombing phase. And it can be very disorienting. Mm -hmm. And over the course of the relationship, those phases intensify. So the first love bombing phase might be, I love you, let's be together forever. Then there's an incident. Then to make up for that, there's a, let's move in together. Let's have our first child together. So you see the two sides of the cycle intensify over yeah. time to the point where the commitment is huge and there's kind of barriers in all these different directions to leaving and the abuse has now also gotten pretty extreme. Yeah, and that's why it can affect people of all socioeconomic and economic um, strata because you get sucked in. You're like, okay, this person loves me and I want that and this is really great and then something awful happens and then you forgive them because they're being amazing again. It can really happen to anyone into either gender too. There are instances of men being abused out there in domestic violence, which can sometimes look different, but at the same time, it, it has similar traits as when it's male on female violence. That's a great point. It definitely does not discriminate. It occurs across all socioeconomic status, gender identity, sexual orientation, and it does present a little bit differently. And I think that's one area where the field and kind of local practitioners can continue to grow is to like really better understand how these dynamics may look in different situations. But that foundation of that power and control is universal. And so that's what we're really looking for when we're talking to folks is like, in what areas of your life do you feel disempowered? And how can we help 
give that control and that autonomy back to you mm-hmm. or help you get it back. Yeah. So anyone listening that's in the, that's dating, I think, is there any red flags that it's so hard to see red flags when you first start dating, especially if it's all happy and that love bombing stage, but you know, what generally can people look for in a new relationship that may be of concern in the future? So I think you do want to take a pause if somebody is encouraging very quick commitment. If you're noticing that this relationship is is progressing maybe in a faster or more extreme way than your other relationships. And that's not to say that it's going to be bad. Sometimes people fall in love and it's quick, right? Yeah. But I think it's good to take a pause. It's okay to take a pause and just assess how you're feeling about how quick things are going. Are you comfortable with that? Are you happy with that? Do you feel a sense of trust with your partner? Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is you really want to look at, does this person support me in the areas of my life that are just for me? Does this person support me in the work that I do or in my relationships that I maintain with friends and family? Does this person support me in relaxing and disconnecting from our relationship when I need to. Mm -hmm. And if you're feeling very supported in those other areas of your life and you feel like your autonomy is not only important to you, but important to your partner... That's a good thing. That's a healthy relationship. (laughs) But if you feel a devaluation of those things or a pressure to navigate away from those things or an outright attack on those things, that's 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 an even bigger red flag, right? Yeah, and I know that it's hard sometimes to watch someone, a, a friend or family member, go through that because it's easier sometimes for someone on the outside to see it than it is for someone that is experiencing that intensity and the extremism of when it does move that quickly. And you touched on it before, that love bombing phase is disorienting for a reason. You're building feelings of attachment, of love, of hope, of a shared future. And people outside of the relationship, they're not experiencing that part. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes they may be able to see it a little bit more clearly, but that part feels very valuable, right? To say, just ignore all of that often doesn't feel good to the person who's experiencing it because those are real things that's happening. It's all about balance. And it's also a recognition that a lot of times with intimate partner violence, they will, the the perpetrator will attack those relationships purposefully. Mm -hmm. Those relationships that help bring balance and perspective to how this person is looking at the relationship and about them. They don't want that person to have balance and perspective. (laughs) They want that person to only be getting the information that they want to give. And so that's another red flag is if you're starting to feel like your relationship is separating you from people who once were very important to you, whose, whose perspective and advice you really value. If you're finding it harder and harder to access those people in a safe way, that's another red flag. And as an outsider, if you're feeling frustrated, take a pause and know that this dynamic and and maybe barriers that are going up between you and your loved one, that might be something that this perpetrator is doing on purpose. And it may be something that the survivor or the victim doesn't have a lot of control over. Yeah. So if your friend or family member is going through it and you take a pause, what else can we do in that stage? It's so hard when the person that's in it isn't to the point yet where they see that this is going to end up in a, a domestic violence situation. Yeah, it is really challenging. And there's kind of two different things you want to keep in mind if you're that outside person, if you're that support person. Number one, everybody goes through stages of change. You can reflect on times where you had to make a big decision, a challenging decision, 
and recognize that you don't get there overnight. Mm -hmm. It takes a building. It takes time for you to be ready to make that change. And so we don't want to guilt people around that. We don't want to shame people around that. We want to recognize that's a very human thing. And we want to try to give that space if it's if possible. The other thing that we want to recognize is that ending a relationship with an abusive partner can be dangerous. It can escalate things. And so if somebody is expressing a hesitancy to a specific course of action, it may not be like, oh, they just don't want to do that. It may be they have genuine and legitimate safety concerns about taking a certain course of action. Because there's probably a lot of, if you're seeing signs of domestic violence in someone's relationship, a friend or a family member, there's probably more that you don't even know about that you're not witness to. So you can't assume that what you're seeing is the worst of it either. Mm-hmm. And as you were saying, leaving is one of the most dangerous parts. So tell us a little bit more about that. Any statistics that you have and any work? I know you do some work in the community about that. One of the programs that I oversee is Lethality Assessment Program. And this is a partnership between Interact and local first responders who are often called out to some of the more dangerous situations. So law enforcement, medical personnel, people who work in emergency rooms. So these are folks who are are often in touch with victims who are at highest risk of being seriously injured or killed by a partner. Mm-hmm. And this is a referral protocol that helps identify those people at high risk and get them connected up to us for high risk kind of interventions and, and ongoing service. Mm-hmm. And what I have noted just anecdotally from my position as the person who is often receiving those referrals and working with those folks who are in those situations is that they very often have just communicated to their partner that they want to relieve the relationship. Mm -hmm. And that is what has caused this explosive incident that winds up with a referral to us. And I think the reason why this can happen is we're talking about a power and control dynamic. The perpetrator feels best when they have power and control over the other person, over the family dynamic, if there's children involved, over the relationship. And when a person who is experiencing this says, I've had enough, I'm going to start taking back that power and control. I'm going to navigate out of this situation. I'm going to leave you. That causes this like massive rupture in what this perpetrator is trying to create. And so it results in kind of retaliation designed to regain that control. Yeah. And talking about gun violence and the majority of women victims of gun violence is domestic violence situations. And there's a reason why if you get a protective order in place that by federal law, you're the abuser, their guns are supposed to be taken away. They don't always, that doesn't always happen. We get to communicate with law enforcement, but there's a reason why a domestic violence abuser should not have firearms in the house or anywhere near that situation. It can be extremely dangerous at that time and just after leaving the relationship as well. Hey guys, it's Jen with New Direction Family Law. Let's face it, divorce affects a lot of people, myself included. I've been there, there's no easy way around it. It just sucks. But determining the finances of one household splitting into two can be one of the most stressful issues of divorce. Will alimony or child support have to be paid? Who gets the house and the cars? Who has to pay all the credit card debt or any other debt? Do I get to keep all of my retirement? These are all important questions that you need answered going into a divorce. And it's so important that you're represented by an experienced family law attorney that can answer these questions for you and help you develop a plan specifically for you and your situation to move forward. New Direction Family Law has over 30 years experience protecting the rights of our clients when going through divorce. 
We aggressively advocate, support, and educate our clients to achieve the best possible outcomes. So give us a call today to schedule an initial consultation at 919-719-3470 or reach out to us via our website at newdirectionfamilylaw.com. So the presence of a firearm or the threatened use of a firearm, that's one of the risk factors that we're assessing during this time. There's a few other things as well. So the use of strangulation or making it difficult for somebody to breathe. If there's a history or pattern of those types of assaults, we want to take that into consideration. We're also looking at threats to harm them. But one of the things that I think is really critical about this screening tool is that it asks the person, do you think this person would try to seriously injure you or kill you? And if they say yes, that's an automatic high risk. Yeah. So it's, it really values the instinct of the person who's in the situation. If you think this is possible, we think it's possible too. Mm-hmm. And I think that can be very validating for survivors when we're talking about their risk level. And that's, again, important for our community and for support people to recognize is that they know the situation best. They are the experts of how this dynamic has looked and where the biggest risk factors are. And so they need to be the leaders of their own plan. Yeah. And we need to be the supporters. A lot of times, I swear, they don't come out and say that when it's the truth, where they would be in a lot of danger and the abuser might actually kill them and they don't even admit that yet. Like, it's so hard sometimes for them to come out and say, this is actually happening and it is extreme and I am scared because I think a lot of them toughen up, especially if they have kids to protect themselves protect the kids and think it's not going to happen to them but it can. and I think that there are certain kind of instincts to to try to minimize sometimes you have to get through the day and and if you're facing some of the bigger truths of what's happening that can be really challenging to mm-hmm. keep moving forward especially if you do have other people involved in this dynamic one thing I'll say about that is getting folks connected to confidential services can be really important if they are in a dynamic where maybe they don't feel like they can completely trust everybody in their circle or they're feeling a certain level of guilt or shame around it that's making it harder for them to disclose what's going on. Getting connected to a confidential provider like Interact helps to take away some of those pressures and helps you be in a space where you can feel as confident about disclosing what's going on as possible. Not to say that clients will share every little thing with us, but I do think yeah. we are we're doing our best to create that safety for them so they can share as much as they're willing. But the other thing is that we also have to get better at listening. Some people may not just come out and say that, but oftentimes they are expressing that something is wrong. And I think we, especially in our personal lives, will shy away from doing something if we don't feel 100% confident that we know what we're doing. But that kind of puts us in a sticky position where then they can only receive support from survive from professionals. And that's not the case. They should receive support from everybody in their yeah. circle. So I think if you are in a situation where you're concerned about a family member or friend, you should also feel comfortable calling Interact. We actually support the friends and family members just as much as we support the survivors themselves. Yeah, because it can be a long road when you see a family member or friend going through it. And like you said, it doesn't immediately happen where they're like, oh, this is a bad relationship. Let me get right out. It it can be a very long road. People can be married for five, 10 years and stay in that relationship before it even gets to the point where other people outside could say, wait a second, because people do change. And sometimes they, they change into an abuser. Maybe they 
didn't really start out that way for the first few years. And there's just every situation is different. And I've come across people who, you know, we all have different personalities and how we respond to situations. A woman might say, well, I hit him back or I yelled at him. And it's not that simple. We have to look at who was the initial aggressor and what are all the the signs and what's the cycle going on before you yelled at him or before you hit him back. Because it's not that simple. I, I think, too, going into the doing better, being better at listeners as well as support people and also believing. I, I had heard statistics and just information around there that whenever someone someone is in the victim in that situation, if they do express to a family member or a loved one or a friend, a confidant, that this is going on and that third-party support person also knows the abuser, that sometimes they won't really believe them that this is happening because they're like, no way, I know him or her. There's no way that they would. And I can't imagine as someone who was trying to express that you're in that situation to have someone that you trust enough to tell them this to not believe you. But I know that's a very real thing. And so I just think it, going back to that active listening piece too, but also believing as hard as it, I quite personally had a friend several years ago that she mentioned it to me and it, I knew both the parties and having known this information now, then it still was even hard to be like, gosh, that's so hard to believe. But of course I believe you, what can I do to help thing? And so I just, just don't you know, do away with that trust or just brush it off just because you think you're that person. Or first find excuses for the behavior. Exactly. Instead yeah. of like, believing and in, in, in supporting. Yeah, I do think that sometimes your knee-jerk reaction when you're on the outside and, and maybe you are both the parties and, and for a moment you're having that like disbelief, like I'm not sure I've never seen anything like that or I've never felt this way when I'm around this person, so I don't really understand how this is happening. The first thing instinctually that you're going to do is ask some questions like why and how is this happening but oftentimes those questions like accidentally victim blame what were you guys talking about leading up to this what did you say why was he or she yeah. so upset so you start to ask these questions and i think it's coming from a place of just wanting to develop more understanding about what's happening but it can actually feel off-putting or, or blaming to the survivor right. and chances are they're already getting a lot of that from the perpetrator. The perpetrator is already telling them that what they're experiencing is their fault or a result of what they are doing. And so if that's the first response they receive outside of the dynamic as well, sometimes they can even start to doubt whether what they're experiencing is intimate partner violence or whether there is some sort of dynamic that they're contributing to. So definitely want to take a pause around that language and ultimately we don't have to know the truth to support somebody. We can just say, okay, that sounds really scary. What is it that you need from me? Right. Regardless, this is a toxic relationship if someone's saying this about their partner. And even if you don't know it's true or not, like this is not a relationship that should continue either, period. And we don't need to know if it's true. We can still just show up and be a good friend and, and just say, what is it that you need in this moment to feel safe? Yeah. Or to jump in. To yeah. jump in and say, why haven't you left? That's such a quick question, I think, for people to ask. But there's so much more that goes. That That's a heavy answer. There's sure. just so many complexities that, that go into that. And again, going back yeah. to like the victim blaming in that scenario. Yeah. And it's hard. I've been practicing in this field for a long time. And I'll occasionally have that thought bubble of like, I want to know more about this. But then I'll stop myself and be like, you want to know more about this for your own reasons. And ultimately, you're here to provide support and information and help them navigate this and those questions don't need answers yeah you know? like you said the abusers already made them feel like it's their fault right that they're the ones that i i hit you because you did this and i'm sorry that i hit you but you were being blah 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 or right. i'm sorry that i yelled at you or called you names or 
you can't have access to the bank account because you did this or that. And right. so you, you really can't, it's hard to do that because you, our brains want to know why things are happening. And that's why we were into like true crime. Like, why did he murder her? I want to know. Mm-hmm. But that's not the right way to go about it in this because it's not always a why. It's just because this right. is that person. And finding out the why for yourself does not. Doesn't help. Yeah, doesn't help the person who's in the situation. Yeah, you, you can go home and watch your true crime yeah. stuff. <laughs> you don't need to be known. And read your books. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So. so what else should we know about domestic violence? I know you probably have some statistics that will help us understand just how real and out there it is among us. And we probably know more than one person that's close to us that's been a victim. Yeah, unfortunately, it is incredibly common. The... National Coalition to End Domestic Violence estimates that about 10 million people in the United States experience intimate partner violence per year. So that's not all forms of domestic violence. That's just intimate partner violence. And that's 10 million a year. Of those 10 million, a large portion of them will experience abuse that is so significant it will result in an injury or other ongoing mental and physical health problems. So it's not just somebody's getting called a name. It's it's significant enough that it's causing real mental and physical impacts. People who experience intimate partner violence are at an increased risk for all sorts of health complications. They're at an increased risk for cardiovascular disease. They're at an increased risk for certain cancers, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. Not only is this happening to a lot of people, it's it has a very real impact. And again, I think our media has done us a little bit of a disservice in that it's shown intimate partner violence or domestic violence as this kind of closed door, it's drama, they'll work it out kind of situation. Mm-hmm. When in reality, it's very significant and, and can really change the trajectory of somebody's life yeah. and not in a good way. So we need to recognize the prevalence and the impact. Unfortunately, these situations can become deadly. As we were talking about before, we have this whole mechanism for helping us as a community identify folks who are at high risk, but people are still being killed. Unfortunately, in 2016, the Wake County area had the highest rate of domestic violence homicides in North Carolina. So not only is this a national problem, right here in our community, we are seeing these situations happening all the time and we're seeing them become deadly. Just last year, Interact took over 8,000 crisis line calls and that was just in one year. So it's happening a lot and it's definitely something that can be exacerbated by things like the global pandemic. Anytime there's a attack on our social and cultural norms for whatever reason, whether it's a natural disaster or, you know, something like the pandemic, it pushes these things aside and mm-hmm. these things get worse when they're not looked at directly. So we saw numbers and incidents of domestic violence increasing across not only the United States, but globally. Yeah. In our next episode, we talked to Tasha, who's with Interact as well, about uh, reaching out to Interact and the services they provide. Just any more recommendations to anyone, a a loved one, a family member or that's watching their friend or family member go through this? What can they do? Yeah. Other than listen. I was going to say, over this this. again. (laughs) But yeah, I guess support them and offering ongoing support that I'm here. If you're not ready to talk about this today, I'll be here tomorrow. Be forgiving of times when they are withdrawn because the abuser is probably cutting that tie mm-hmm. and making sure you're still there when they come back. What else can you think of? You did a great job. Oh, that's good. <laughs> you moonlight for interact, Sarah? Those are definitely the two yeah. things that I bring forward the most is just creating a safe 
dynamic with them they may be losing those safe spaces because of the relationship and so Mm -hmm. if you can hang in there and continue to be somebody who can show up and and talk in a way that feels very validating to them that's you know number one and then number two is just taking a beat when you start to feel like okay i i think i have a plan that's going to work let's like get something going let let's create an escape route for you just knowing that has to be very collaborative with the person because they really do know what's happening more than anybody else they know what's going to be safe what's not going to be safe and so you don't want to prescribe anything you want to have a conversation and you want to really follow their lead the good news is that a lot of people transition successfully from being victims to survivors this does happen to a lot of people but a lot of people are able to navigate out of it and it's with their support people it's with interact it's with other providers in the area so if you are experiencing something like this just know that there's a way out and there are people here who support you right because as attorneys we're often on the very back end of it there'll be years of domestic violence before they get to the point and maybe have the funds to hire a private attorney to either do the protective order part or maybe they've already done that through interact and legal aid and then we come in to handle any custody or just a dissolution of the financial part of it and I get to see a lot of times them on the year later. So I get to see that strength rebuilding again, which is amazing. So I really value that part of my job and working with the victims. And so I'm thankful for that. But I know there's a lot of hard work that goes into that before they come to me. So thank you, Ryan, for being there for them. Yeah. And anyone listening, you can just go to Interact's webpage and we'll talk about it more in next episode. There are certainly uh, services out there for you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank yeah. you for having me. Ryan. Thanks for listening. This episode is complete. Visit newdirectionfamilylaw.com for show notes and resources and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for more resources and information. And remember, with change comes empowerment.